We'll flip over to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20. We'll be picking up this morning where we left off last time. We're in Matthew, chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. It says there, Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside, and he said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Jesus is on his final journey to Jerusalem to complete the work that God the Father has given him to do. This is what Jesus was born to do. This is why God the Son entered our time and space as a human being. He was born to die for us and he and be raised to life again for us. We noted back in Matthew chapter 19 in the first verse there that Jesus has been making his way south toward Jerusalem, traveling from what had been his home base in Capernaum on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And when we read here, it says that now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. It might be a little confusing since Jerusalem is south and west of where they had been on the east side of the Jordan River just uh, a little bit before this text here. But Jerusalem is up in the mountain range above the Jordan River Valley. The Jordan River Valley is over a thousand feet below sea level. The city of Jerusalem is is at about 2,500 feet above sea level, So it's an ascent of some 4,000 feet to go up to Jerusalem. Well, tension is growing as Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem. In Mark's telling of this story, he notes that the disciples are astonished. They're surprised and astounded. And many who are following along are afraid, it says in Mark's telling of this story. Well, why? Why are people so uneasy about Jesus going up to Jerusalem? Jerusalem is the seat of power in Israel, both politically and religiously. It's no secret that the religious leaders and power brokers are at serious odds with Jesus. They want to put an end to this troublemaker. Common wisdom would recommend that Jesus avoid Jerusalem. It's risky to go there, unless, of course, Jesus is intending to have a confrontation with the religious leadership in Jerusalem. Now, you may remember that the Jewish people of Jesus' day were expecting a Messiah who would be a great king like David, leading them in victory over their enemies who at that time were the Romans and establish Israel as an indisputable power. Many have been hoping that Jesus would step forward and reveal himself as Messiah and as king and begin to overthrow their Roman oppressors. As it becomes apparent that Jesus is heading now to Jerusalem, they're thinking the time for Jesus to make his move is drawing near. It's also becoming clear to those closest to Jesus that something has definitely changed about him. There is a deeper level of focus about him. In Luke's account of the life of Jesus, he describes this change in Jesus like this in Luke 9, 51. It says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. It literally says Jesus set his face 
to go to Jerusalem, which is an expression meaning that he had a focused determination about this. They don't understand the mission of Jesus, though. He is indeed going to Jerusalem to fulfill his mission. He is indeed going there to face the religious leaders and the power brokers. But his mission is not to lead the people in a campaign to overthrow the Romans. Instead, it's as he says here in Matthew 20, 18, he will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, the Romans, to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Jesus is not going to Jerusalem to be exalted as king. He's going there to suffer and die. This is the third time that Jesus has clearly predicted his rejection, his torture, and his death and resurrection in the Gospel of Matthew. His disciples and the others following along, they refuse to accept it, though. They don't understand what he's saying, nor do they want to accept it and understand it. It doesn't fit into the story that they have grown up with believing and hoping about Messiah. For them, he's going to be a great king in the lineage of King David. He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to establish the glory of Israel. That's what he's going to do. They know it. They are not going to accept anything else. And as we've noted before, they completely just blow right past Jesus' prediction of his resurrection, paying no attention to that at all. In Luke's telling of this story, he describes their lack of understanding like this in Luke 18.34. It says, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and, did, and they did not know what he was talking about. Before we move to the next passage, I want us to consider how Jesus is continuing steadfastly toward Jerusalem, knowing full well what is waiting for him there. Jesus is fully embracing the mission that God has for him to be rejected, humiliated, tortured, killed in the most brutal of ways. This is a profound display of courage as he resolutely steps into the fate that he knows is waiting for him in Jerusalem. If you're looking for a genuine, real superhero who gives his life and all for the people, fighting evil, standing up for what is good, then Jesus Christ is your guy. There's nothing cowardly about him. He's the Lion of Judah, not marching into Jerusalem to destroy mere mortals, though, but to lay his life down before them to overcome the greater enemy of sin and death and hell. Verse 20. It says, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Zebedee's sons are Jesus' disciples, James and John. In Mark's telling of the story, he says James and John are the ones who make this outrageous request of Jesus. Here in Matthew, it's their mother making the request. 
all three of them, obviously, mom and the two boys, are involved in what's going on here. They want Jesus to give James and John the highest places of honor in his kingdom, right next to him on his left and on his right. Think about the context of this request when it's being made, though. Jesus just said, he just said, I want you guys to know that when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be rejected, condemned, humiliated, tortured, and killed. And now, James and John and their mom respond with, well, you know, we don't really believe what you're saying about all of that. Instead, let's talk about something else that we think is more important. Let's talk about those seats of power on your right and your left in your kingdom. We want first dibs on those. Rather than listening to what Jesus is saying and taking it to heart, all they can think about is how they can cash in when Jesus is in charge as the great king. You may remember that back in Matthew 18, the first three verses there, the disciples, the whole bunch of them, asked Jesus, who's the greatest among us? And Jesus answered them saying, in verse 3, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't appear that Jesus has gotten through to them. Because here, two of the disciples are at it again. This time, these guys are making a more direct and aggressive attempt at securing positions of power over the other disciples. Do you remember who these two guys are? James and John? Jesus gave these two brothers the nickname Sons of Thunder, which probably has something to do with their dispositions. They're the two who asked Jesus if they could call fire down from heaven to destroy the Samaritan village that didn't welcome him in Luke 9.51. Can, can we smoke them, Jesus? Can we burn them? Jesus said, Put your fire away, boys. In their current state, these two are not the kind of people that we would want as number two and number three in charge in the kingdom of God. They would be torching everything in sight. You know, the same could be said about us. I know that I'm not ready for that kind of power in my current state either. Some days... I would be in the mood to torch the whole planet. While other days, I would let everyone get away with anything they wanted. James and John, I would not trust. Me, I would not trust. You, I would not trust. Jesus, I trust. Jesus said in verse 22, you don't know what you're asking, he said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Jesus tries to explain to them that they don't really know what they're asking for. This isn't going to be rainbows and lollipops. There's going to be tremendous suffering and then death. All James and John can see, though, is the glory of Jesus sitting on his throne as the boss of everything, and they want a piece of the action. Before there will be any glory, there's going to be unbelievable humiliation. 
before there will be any raising up. There's going to be a tremendous casting down and crushing. Jesus asked them, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And they confidently answer, oh, we can. But they don't have a clue about what they're talking about. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. There's a beautiful promise of salvation through the gospel that is given in verse 23 here that is for all of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and follow Him. He says, you will indeed drink from my cup. Jesus drank the cup of suffering for us. Isaiah 53, 5 says, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him, and by His wounds we are healed. Jesus suffered and died in our place, taking upon Himself the punishment and the judgment that we deserve for our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Him Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus said it was not for him to decide who would sit at his right or his left in his kingdom. Those places were reserved for whoever God the Father would decide. We don't know who those places of honor are for. But I think we will be surprised by who will sit at those places of honor. Do you remember the teaching of Jesus from last time? Matthew 20, 16, Jesus said, So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Greatness in the kingdom of God is measured by a very different standard than is used in this world. Those regarded as greatest in this world will not necessarily be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Those regarded as the least in this world are not necessarily so in the kingdom of God. The things valued most in this world are not the things valued most in the kingdom of God. The last will be first, and the first will be last. Verse 24 says, When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Now that's humanity for you right there. When the other disciples hear about what James and John and their mother have done, going behind their backs, trying to secure the places of highest honor for themselves, they're angry. But these guys, they're not saddened or brokenhearted to discover this terrible attitude displayed by James and John. They're just mad because they beat him to the punch. Jesus, he sees through all of the one-upmanship, all of the competition going on between all of these guys, and he gives them another lesson about how the kingdom of God works in contrast to this world. In verse 25, Jesus called them together and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. 
Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first must be your slave. In the kingdom of God, greatness is not achieved by asserting rank, but by humble service. The classic power structure in the world is a triangle with the narrowest end at the top, and those on the bottom support the power on the top, and their main function is to serve those at the top. But in the kingdom of God, it's all turned upside down. The greatest support and serve the others. The greatest give themselves away to the others. They're to be servant leaders. We find this same teaching throughout the New Testament expressed again and again in various ways. One of the most dramatic illustrations we have is the story told in the Gospel of John when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples on the night before he was to be crucified. John 13 5, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So we have Jesus, the incarnate God, who the Father has put all things under, taking the position of the lowest servant in the house and washing the dirty feet of his disciples. And if we skip down to verse 12 of John 13, it says, When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus has set us an example of how we are to serve one another. This world is based on survival of the fittest. Dog eat dog. To the strong go the spoils. Eat or be eaten. Take or be taken. The weak serve the strong. But Jesus wants his followers, us, to live by a different standard with one another. He wants us to look to the needs of one another. He wants us to help each other. He doesn't want us to be caught up with titles and positions and pecking orders and the like. Instead, we're to serve one another. Romans 12.10 says, Be devoted to one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Finally, verse 28, Jesus is continuing here, and he says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So again, we have the example of Jesus. This verse really encapsulates the life and the mission of Jesus Christ on earth. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for us. That word ransom, it means the price paid for release or freedom. Jesus gave his life as the price to 
purchase our release from bondage to sin and death. 1 Peter 1.18 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers or from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus gave himself, his life, For us, he purchased our freedom with his own blood. This is the gospel message that we have entrusted our eternal souls to. Consider this. Every time that you and I humble ourselves and serve another, we step down to lift another up, exchange places with someone of less importance, we're exemplifying the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are, giving, we are being a living example of what Jesus has done for us and the whole world. Philippians 2.3 summarizes this, this whole thing that we've been talking about when Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Finally, we have this last story in verse 29 to the end of the chapter. It says, As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. So as we noted before, Jesus, he's heading to Jerusalem, and on his way, he passes through the city of Jericho, Jericho is about 20 miles east of Jerusalem, down in that Jordan River Valley that we talked about a little bit ago, at about 1,000 feet below sea level. It's a climbing elevation of some 3,500 feet to go from Jericho to Jerusalem. And as he's leaving Jericho, Jesus is interrupted by the impassioned plea of a couple of blind men. It's not unusual to see a blind person sitting along the roadside like this, begging for handouts from those who passed by in those days. This is the way these men made their living, so to speak. There was not an established and organized welfare system like we have in our own country in our day. People like this had to rely on handouts from individuals. So they would position themselves in places where People would pass by often, and then they would beg for handouts. 
This day, it probably started out like most other days for these men. They got up in the morning. They found their way to their usual spot where they would sit. But this day is going to turn out to be the most important day of their lives. When they hear this huge crowd coming by and all of the commotion associated with it, they they ask what's going on, and they're told that Jesus is passing by. And when they hear that it's Jesus, they just start shouting as loud as they can, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And people, they, they try to get them to stop yelling, but they just shout all the more. These people, they, they see them as a nuisance. They're making a scene. They're getting in the way. What, what would the great rabbi want with you guys? Be quiet. Get out of the way. We're trying to get a look at Jesus. We're trying to hear what he's saying. They had heard the stories about Jesus. They're not going to let this opportunity slip away. No matter what the other people say, they have to get Jesus' attention somehow. So they give it all they've got. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The way they refer to Jesus is important. It's significant. They call him Son of David, which was a messianic title. By using this title, they're declaring their belief in Jesus as Messiah. They may be blind physically, but they are demonstrating more spiritual sight than many around them. 32, Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Up to this point, no one has taken these men seriously. They have just been treated as a huge distraction and annoyance getting in the way. They've been pushed aside by everyone. But Jesus, he stops this whole procession of people and he takes these overlooked, forgotten, despised, pushed aside, outcasts, and he asks them, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus sees them like no one else does. And they see Jesus like few do. And now Jesus gives them an opportunity to demonstrate that to the whole crowd, the opportunity to express their faith in the power of Jesus, the Son of David, the Messiah. And they answer Jesus, Lord, we want our sight. In verse 34, Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. In closing this morning, I want to leave us with that same thought that we mentioned a bit ago, and it's this. Every time, every time that you and I humble ourselves and serve another, every time we step down to lift another up, every time we exchange places with someone of less importance than ourself, we're exemplifying the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are being a living example of what Jesus has done for us and the whole world. I encourage us this week 
Let's exemplify the gospel with our life. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for your good word. We thank you that you've preserved these stories about Jesus for us. We ask, Lord, that you would enable us to exemplify the gospel with the way that we live our life this week, that we would step down and take that position of a servant like Jesus did. We're so grateful, Lord Jesus, that you came and took on the position of a servant, that you came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for us. We thank you for that, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.